If you believe that you're a child of God, would you say amen? amen. Very good. I'm going to ask you later why you can say that with confidence, because most of you did. You said you believe it, you just sang it. I'm going to ask you to back that up, why you believe you can say that. And I'm going to show you from Scripture this morning why you can say it confidently. I want you to leave here this morning feeling better about who you are when God says you're my child, so that you would actually walk a little taller, not just on Sunday, but on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday, that you can actually walk in the reality of who you are to God. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to go to Romans chapter 9. If you're watching online, please do the same thing. I'd love for you to be uh, following along with us in God's Word. Maybe you have a, a hard copy or you have it electronically, maybe on your phone or an iPad. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, we have free Bibles in the back of the auditorium. I see that a whole bunch of them are gone now from what were there earlier. So maybe somebody can make sure we have a few more back there um, on that table. There's only a couple there right now. If you need a Bible, get a free Bible this morning on your way out. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Best thing you can own, right, New Hope? Yeah, best thing you can own, absolutely. So Romans chapter 9, we're uh, going to finish it up this morning, amazingly. We're going to get all the way through the end of the chapter. And uh, you might recall how chapter 9 started. Paul was going through this lamenting process. Let me remind you what chapter 8 said. Chapter 8 has all these enormous promises. And most people love Romans chapter 8. Because Paul's reassuring us about, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he gets to the very end of it, and it's a climax. The, the crescendo hits the, the peak when he begins declaring the reality of why you can believe that. But when he comes to Romans chapter 9, he starts to lament. And let me show you verse 3 on the screen. You'll, you'll remember this. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Paul's essentially saying, I would go to hell if it meant that the people who are in my social circle would come to Christ. I don't know if you could say that yourself this morning. I asked that question back in April when we were looking at chapter 9, verse 3. Would you be willing to go to hell if it meant that your loved ones would get into eternity? That's what Paul's saying. I would go to hell if it meant that these ones would know the promises of Christ. What's going on there? Well, his fellow Jews, his, his social circle, his people as a nation have rejected Jesus. But what Paul wants us to know, and he's making an argument in chapter 9, is just because the chosen people of Israel, just because they have rejected Jesus as a whole, that doesn't mean God's promises are rendered void. All those promises of chapter 8... They're not nullified. God's still in control. So watch where he goes in verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So in other words, just because they're genetically born Jews, just because they're born physically of Abraham, doesn't mean they actually belong. Paul's got to support that position. Because he's made enormous promises, and if God has chosen a group of people and said, these are my people, but they don't actually follow through, how can his promises actually follow through to us who are not the chosen people? How do we understand that? Well, that's where he goes. So we're going to fast forward to verse 25. That's where we left off last week. We did verse 24. Go with me to verse 25, and he begins quoting some Old Testament prophecies. 
Verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. I want to help you understand there's some double meaning going on here. Paul's quoting Hosea twice. He quotes Isaiah twice, as you'll see in just a moment. And here's the background. In the time of Hosea in the Old Testament, when that guy lived, God's dealing with his people, the chosen people, because they're living like anything but God's people. They're living completely apart from God, egregiously behaving against God. And so God has to deal with them. You wouldn't look at them and think they're his people. Now, to fully understand the meaning behind this, why he's quoting Hosea, I'm going to actually take you back to the original Old Testament text in the book of Hosea. To save you the time turning there in your Bible, just look with me up on the screen at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, The Lord said to Hosea, Go and take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. If you don't know the Bible, this is what he's telling him to do. Go find a prostitute. I know you're my guy, Hosea. I know you're a prophet, but go find a prostitute. Go find a lady of the night and make babies with her. Take her as your wife and bring children into the world. And I'm going to use that, Hosea. I'm going to use that as a living picture of what Israel is doing. So Hosea does that. He goes out and he finds a harlot. And her name is Gomer. And it's not that her parents didn't like her. That's not why they named her that, okay? Um, Gomer was actually, it's a Hebrew term that means completion. And so it was a common name at that time. So he goes out, and let's pick it up in chapter 1 again. I'll just show you excerpts from verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 8. Look at what he does. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of Bidibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel, for a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. Now that's a minor issue, but look at this big issue. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. What? The, the chosen people? You're going to put an end to that? Now go with me to verse 6. Look at the next thing. Then she, Gomer, conceived again and con gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her La Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. This is really ramping up. Go with me to verse 8. When she had weaned La Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lohamai, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. When you actually go to the story of Hosea and, and you read it, it appears that Hosea is not convinced that baby number two and baby number three are even his. She's a prostitute. She's a lady of the night. And he's thinking, she's cheated on me. And so he comes with these second and third names because he's thinking those babies, they're not his. He's not the daddy. So those names that he chooses, Lohamai, it means no kin of mine. And that third name, the, the one Laruhamah, I have no natural affection for that one. These are the names God said, give those to those babies because this is what Israel's doing when they broke their covenant with me. So God commands him, I know you're my guy. But I want you as a prophet of mine to take that prostitute, bring her into your home, have children with her, despite her adultery, despite her unfaithfulness, she is what Israel is. 
So just get this in your mind. Why is Paul using this in Romans chapter 9? Why does he bring this fast forward into the life of the church? Well, this is really intense. It's very vivid. It's an analogy of spiritual unfaithfulness. So get these names in your head. She gives birth to this firstborn son. Name him Jezreel. And that means God scatters. And then the daughter comes into the world and God says, name her this name of, this is not mine. This is not my kin. I've gained no compassion for this one. And this third one, this is like life without a tribe. This is no child of mine, for I am not your God, and you are not my people. So at God's direction, they will be scattered, and they will be despised, and they will be disowned. And that very thing happened to them throughout history. And yet God says, in mercy, in my mercy and my compassion, I promise they're not permanently disowned. So just as Hosea had to go back and purchase Gomer from the slave block because she cheated on him and she disappeared into the streets and she was found in the back alley again and somebody put her on the slave block and she's stripped naked before all of the public, he has to go to the auction house and actually buy his own wife back. God says, I'm going to do that with Israel even though they have prostituted themselves. Even though they're not my people, I'm not going to permanently disown them. But until that day happens, God says, I'm going to treat them as not my people. But he's going to treat the Gentiles, those who are not born of the Jews, who were not his people, as his people. So by the leading of the Holy Spirit... God moves Paul to write down in Romans chapter 9 this thing that's going on for you and I today. Let me remind you of what it said. Just look with me on the screen. Romans chapter 9, verse 25. I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. His purpose in this is to show that all this unbelief that happened among his social circle his entire nation who had rejected Jesus, that's no surprise to God. It's not inconsistent with his plan. And in a larger way, it's actually referring to the broader rejection of Jesus as Messiah to this entire planet. You're church people. So you recognize that rejecting Jesus as Messiah is the supreme rejection of God. It's an act of spiritual adultery, God says. So in the case of Israel doing this, they're living exactly this way when Paul writes Romans chapter 9. However, they're just doing what the prophets predicted. So Paul's saying, I'm, I'm not surprised. I would go to hell for these people, but I'm not surprised by their behavior because God saw this coming. They're denying the gospel, but there's a day coming when the fullness of the Gentiles will come in, when God will complete what he's doing. And when that happens, then... Then I'm going to bring Israel back to me. But God promises those who had become not my people, and that day they're going to become my people. Uh, here's how you need to see this. You just plowed through 10 minutes of pretty intricate stuff, right? How does this apply to me, Mark? Well, when you go into the New Testament, you find statements made about you, the church, that are calling you the people of God. You just sang it. I am who God says I am. I'm a child of God. Well, how do you know that for sure? Watch with me on the screen at what Peter writes about the church. 1 Peter 2.10. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, new hope. 
You had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. Is that not a beautiful verse? When you understand the context of what's going on behind that, Peter's drawing off in the exact same imagery that Paul was drawing off from in Romans, the same imagery that Hosea used when he wrote about people who were being excommunicated versus those who are the people of God. See, here these words refer to you people. They refer to you as the church. So if you feel this morning like you don't have a people, you do. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you do. You have a people. I believe these words are especially important for people who are new to New Hope. I meet people every weekend who are new. Our church is continuing to grow as it has been over the years, but new people are coming all the time, and, and they survey the crowd and they look around and say, do I fit in here? Do I belong here? Will I be accepted? I want you to hear this if you're new to New Hope. First and foremost, if you belong to Jesus, you are God's people, right? Therefore, you are my people. We are people together. You are our tribe because we're fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's not who you are yet, if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, we want to help you discover who Jesus is. We want to point you to see how you can have a relationship with God, and it only happens through Jesus. Now here, Paul, he's, his focus is on Israel. And he says, my people, my people, I would go to hell for them. And as we saw in the very beginning of the chapter, his heart is breaking over this issue. Because when the Jews rejected God, they became scattered. They became unpitied. They became a not my people, just like the Gentiles. And so as far as God's concerned, they're not connected to God. And according to Scripture, they became disconnected. So Paul goes on with this kind of an obscure statement. He says, it shall be in that day that in the place that they live, they shall be called the sons of the living God. And most theologians look at that and they're speculating, like, what is he talking about there? What does he mean, those places? Here's the best guess at it, if you're wondering before we move on. Most think that in all the places that God dispersed Israel to all over the planet, every continent on the planet... Those are the places he's talking about. Even in their foreign land where they don't call out their homeland, in those places they could be called the sons of the living God again. But after the scattering, he's going to bring them back, not only to their own land, but most importantly to their Lord, and they will confess Jesus Christ as Savior. So keep your eye on the Middle East. Keep your eye on the Holy Lands because God's up to something. God's doing things all the time there. Now, the point for Paul is this present unbelief, it's not unforeseen by God. It actually was known long before it occurred. So he goes to Isaiah. Go with me to verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Now, the Greek word for cry out is the word kradzo. You've probably heard me use it here before at church, but it actually means to scream in anguish or in actually in despair. So Paul's saying, even Isaiah was doing what I'm doing. Even Isaiah's in agony here. This is really shredding Isaiah's heart because he's uttering this disastrous truth. You can feel his pain as he's weeping for his social circle. Check this. Of all the vast descendants, hundreds of millions of people who have descended from Abraham, God's saying, eh, just a few, only a scrap, only a remnant will be saved. Verse 29, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. 
Pay very close attention to that because Sodom and Gomorrah are Gentile cities. They're not Jewish cities. But he draws in the Gentile imagery, and we'll talk about Sodom and Gomorrah in just a moment. But he's using this very purposefully here. He says, unless the Lord of the Sabaoth, now in your notes this morning, you see the word Sabaoth, and, and it actually means the Lord of hosts, or the king of the armies of heaven, meaning he's the God of all creation, even over the armies of heaven, he controls everything, and unless that one had left to us a posterity, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Posterity is the word sperma in the Greek language. It means offspring or seed. Unless God had left us a seed, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah? Boom. One day, God obliterates not just those two cities, but the ten cities of the Decapolis surrounding it. Instantly, quickly, God brought judgment upon them, and Isaiah and Paul are both writing the exact same thing, unless God had done this. Unless he had averted destruction, we would have become just like those people. And you have to ask yourself, what in the world could possibly avoid that kind of destruction? Because when God decides to destroy, he destroys utterly. What could possibly stop that? Well, it's called the grace of God. It's the grace of God that left them a posterity. It's the same thing that saved you this morning, New Hope. The grace of God invaded your life and stopped you from the track you were headed down, headed for hell. But God said, no, I'm going to show my grace upon you. God averts the destruction by bringing only his grace. That's the only thing that stops destruction. So Paul comes to the ending with verse 30, and he argues this with you. What shall we say then? Follow this out in verse 30. How, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Here's a paradox. Riddle me this, Paul says. How is it that these people who are chasing righteousness, they don't get it? And these people who are not chasing it and have no interest, they get it. What do I do with that? How is that possible? Well, here's how it's possible. I guarantee you, you have people in your social circle this morning who are doing the exact same thing. Israel was trying to be saved by works, by being good enough. If I can just be good enough, God will let me in. Instead of being saved by grace, they tried to please God with being good enough. So Paul uses this word pursue, and you see it in your notes. It's the word diako, and it's used of a person who's going hunting. They go out in the field and they're chasing after a deer, they're chasing after a rabbit, they're chasing after a fox, and they're pursuing it, doggedly chasing it down. That's what, the reason he uses this word here. They pursued it. They chased after righteousness, but they're going after it through the law. And he says they didn't pursue righteousness by faith. And I guarantee you, the world today is full of people who are thinking they get to God exactly that way. You have people in your social circle, your student here, I bet you're going to school with people who think that. And they think it because either their uncle or their aunt or their grandma or their mom or their dad said, you'd be a good girl, you'd be a good boy, and maybe God will let you in one day. And that's absolutely wrong. That is not scriptural. That is not the God of the Bible. That's the thinking humanly that we can do enough and we're prideful enough, we think we can do enough to please God. When I was in eighth grade, I went to a funeral of a friend of mine who was also in eighth grade who was killed suddenly by a car. His grandpa was a pastor. 
I went to the church where the service was at, and they talked about what a great young man David was and how reliable he was and what a great son and grandson he was and what a young man of great moral character he was. But not one person in the entire service, and this is burned in my brain, even in eighth grade, of listening to no one at all ever mentioned that David had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They talked about his good works and the good things he had done and that God's smiling on him today. Not true if you're not in relationship with Jesus Christ. If Jesus doesn't set you free, you are not free. But he who the Lord sets free is free indeed. Just a few years ago, I'm talking with a woman who's in her late 70s. We're talking about heaven. And she says, you know, I'm nearing the end of my life, and I've been looking forward to the day when I step into heaven. And so that triggered, obviously, the question for me, okay, how do you know you're going to step into heaven? It's like me asking you, how can you say that you're a child of God? Well, in her case, she said back to me, well, I know that's where I'm headed because I've been a good girl all my life. She died five months ago. Still in that mindset, I've been a good girl. Being a good girl and being a good boy doesn't cut it. And that's what Paul's grieving over for these Jews. They're thinking exactly the same way. See, the great obstacle to salvation, new hope, is self-righteousness. I think I've done enough, and maybe God's going to tip the scales in my favor one day. So the person who thinks they're good enough doesn't see any need for the gospel whatsoever because they mostly think they satisfied God already by their works, so they see no need for the gospel. That's why what's going on here with you today is amazing because the reality is, and the reason it's called amazing grace is because God opened your eyes to the reality of sin in your life, that you're sinners in need of a Savior. I'm the same thing. Michael just sang about it. We all have sin. We know that. Scripture says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul's grieving over this issue. So consequently, he says, Israel, they're pursuing a law of righteousness, and they did not arrive at it. Here's where he goes with the last two verses. Why? How is this possible? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. And if you have your own Bible with you right now, you might want to circle the word it. It occurs twice in the first sentence. They did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. What's the it? He says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. The it is righteousness. They pursued righteousness not by faith, but by works. And so they stumble over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is the final quote that he makes, and he closes chapter 9 there. And he's referring to an Old Testament quote from Psalm 118. King David is writing about Jesus. When Jesus comes, he begins writing about the chief cornerstone. Look with me on the screen at Psalm 118, 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is God's stone of salvation. But people miss it all the time. And so Jesus is involved in a conversation in the first century when he's here on the planet, and he's got a large group of people gathered in front of him. And he begins telling them parables about how they can know who he is. And he ramps it up by telling a parable about a vineyard. And he's got a bunch of winemakers who are making wine, and they have a responsibility to give back to the owner of the vineyard 
some of the produce and they don't do it and instead they kill God's workers that come there, Jesus very quickly translates over to begin talking about himself. And then he begins quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Look with me on the screen. Jesus said to them from Matthew 21, Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He's talking about you, church. You are the people whom it's been given to. It's been taken away from people who were chasing after it by works righteousness. And God says, there are those who will come to me by faith and it will be given to them because they are the ones chasing after the fruit of the kingdom. This is you. So God gave Jesus as the foundation stone and he became a stumbling stone to some. You're church people, so you know that the only thing someone can do to be saved is to believe. Amen? Oh, come on. It's like 10 of you that believe that. I'm going to give you another chance. The only thing you can do to be saved is believe. Hey, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That means believe who he is, who he says he is. Not just that he's a historical person, but that he is the one. People continue to be irritated with the gospel for a variety of reasons, but here's the primary one. Because it nullifies the thought that I'm good enough. I'm good the way I am. I've done enough good things. I think the scales are tipped in my favor. I've been a good girl all my life. God's going to let me in. And when you tell them that's wrong, it ticks them off. It actually irritates them. So Paul says things like this in 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, it's just stupid. It's like, what? You're telling me I've got to do that to get into heaven? It's foolish. It continues to be the stumbling stone, the one that everybody trips over. Here's the good news according to God's word. The one who does believe, if that's you this morning, you got faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God says, if you're the one who believes in me, you will not be disappointed. That's a great, great way to end Romans chapter 9. He who believes in him, who's the him? Jesus, will not be disappointed. That word disappointed, it actually means shamed. Every one of us in this auditorium will stand before God one day. Everybody watching online right now, you're going to stand before God one day. I don't know if it's tomorrow or 50 years from now. I don't know what God has in store for your life. But when you stand before him, God says, if you believe in my son, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be shamed. God says, no, (laughs) counterpoint. I'm going to call you into the kingdom of heaven and say, well done, welcome. This has been prepared for you. You will not be disappointed. How amazing that Paul ended with that statement. So what he's saying is, Romans 9, the reality of God's people abandoning Jesus, that doesn't negate the promises of Romans 8. God's still faithful. God's still gracious. And he keeps his promises. So you know this, your church people. God's prerequisite has always been the same. 
He does not save on the basis of birth or behavior. It's not works-based. He doesn't save on the basis of birth or behavior. Let me rabbit trail with you for just a minute before I end. Next week when we get together, we're going to look at the story of the thief on the cross. We're not going to do Romans. Did you know that Father's Day weekend is the lowest attended weekend of the year in church? Not New Hope, church-wide across the United States. It's a reality. Here's the way I think conversations go on Sunday morning of Father's Day. Hey, it's your day, Dad. What do you want to do? Oh, I don't want to go to church. Let's golf or let's go fishing or anything. Let's go do something different. Okay, well, I get that. But here's a reality. I think a lot of dads want to stay away because they're afraid that, why is it on Mom's Day, moms always get built up, but on Dad's Day, dads always get slammed, right? And, and it causes that, oh, I'm not sure I want to do that. God pushed on my heart to teach on the thief on the cross next week because if you've got somebody in your life, in your social circle, who's looking to understand that God doesn't save on the basis of birth or behavior, but rather he saves based on the confession of Jesus. The thief on the cross is your guy. Talk about somebody being saved in the ninth hour of their life. He's your guy. I'm so glad God included the thief on the cross in the Bible, aren't you? That's such a great story. It's not on the basis of behavior. It's on the basis of confessing who Jesus is. So we know that our eternal righteousness is not based on the good things that we do because God is not put in debt to anyone. He's not a debtor to anyone. And if you've got someone in your world this morning who's thinking they're good enough, they're failing to grasp the massiveness of what sin does, and they misunderstand the holiness of a great God who saves by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any one of us would boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by the way, if that sounds familiar. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm grateful for these students of the word who have gathered together. I'm grateful for everybody who's in this auditorium, that you have opened up your word again. You've caused it to become alive, and you promise that's what you do. So I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will not leave here this morning walking out with just Sunday encouragement, Father, but rather it would go with us on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that we are reminded we are your people, and therefore we are a child of yours. Help us to remember, God, that we belong to your tribe, and nothing can change that because you've sealed us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We praise you for that reality in the name of the one who saved us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.